Welcome to Biographicon. Welcome to Biographicon, the series that casts new light on little-known figures from the 18th century north. In this episode, we travel to the city of York to hear about the actor and theatre manager Tate Wilkinson and the Yorkshire Company. In this episode, I'm joined by Professor Emerita of the University of York and Fellow of the Australian Academy of the Humanities, Gillian Russell, to talk about one of the most successful provincial theatre managers of the 18th century, Tate Wilkinson. So welcome, Gillian, and thank you for joining us on Biographicon. Thanks, Dacon. It's great to be able to talk about Tate Wilkinson. Tate Wilkinson was an adopted Yorkshireman, wasn't he? He's not from York. He's not a northerner. Um, he's born in London, and he comes from actually a comparatively well-established background. But there's a, a scandal in his background because his father was a clergyman, but quite a, a prominent one in London circles, with also connected with the court. And so he's chaplain to the Savoy um, in London, and he actually has stages of marriages that are illegal, going against the law, that are not licensed. Um, and it was probably he's earning money, you know, by doing this. He gets caught and he's convicted, but before he's, uh, and he's transported, but before he can leave kind of Plymouth, he dies. So that w- would have been like a tremendous scandal for, for Wilkinson. And maybe explains in a sense why he decides to move to the north, you know, and maybe, you know, rebuild a different life for himself. He's he's an established actor, best known as a mimic. He would be, you know, the Rory Bremner, you know, of of the age. Though I think like maybe maybe impersonations like an impressionism is is uh, you know, not such a big part of popular culture today. Yeah, so that's what he specialised in. And also in, in taking off other performers. And sometimes the other performers got offended, like Peg Woffington. There's a famous incident in which he's he's mimicking her and she doesn't like it at all. She's a major star this period. So he, mo- he moves to, to Yorkshire, settles in York and uh, gets involved with a local manager here called Joseph Baker, who becomes a kind of father figure for him and Tate Wilkinson invests in uh, the York Theatre and I think he brings like something like £1,400, which is a lot of money for that uh, period. So he, w- he was comparatively wealthy when he comes here and then Baker dies and that means that Wilkinson kind of takes over uh, the York Theatre and he also gets this patent he manages to secure a patent uh, which means that like he he's not being going to be threatened uh, by the local magistrates or whatever to close down his theater so it's giving him enormous kind of local privilege so he's can play in York and also he has a patent for Hull so two theaters royal and then he develops a, a kind of local circuit mainly kind of catering to associate with races and also assizes. 
She's catering to the broader kind of gentry and elite networks in, in Yorkshire at the time. Yeah, and as you're saying about Tate Wilkinson being somebody who perhaps would have been educated for a different life, yes, but yeah. then ends up in it. There are lots of actors who end up yeah. in that situation for yes. one reason or another, but who have had even grammar school educations or so yes. on. So yeah. they're very comfortable yeah. with rhetoric, with a, yeah. with a, a well-informed yeah. people. Yeah. yeah, well, his destiny would have been the church. Or, and I think after his father died there was a possibility that you know he would maybe be- join the the military like the navy perhaps but but he was apparently like fascinated by the stage so he's someone you know who's coming from that kind of polite background he's not from the lower orders you know he's got connections and he would have gone into acting as someone who knew how to deport himself and and could Obviously, he could mimic other people, but also, like, uh, you know, taking off the gentleman as well would, would have come easy, which would, would have been an asset, say, to uh, his interactions, say, with, you know, uh, uh, posh aristocrats, you know, that he needed to kind of, uh, you know, meet and so on for in his encounters in the, the theatre and so on, that he could hold his own with them. Traditionally, when you arrived in a town, you know, you'd have yeah. to make a, a con- prior yes. to the law changing, yeah. you'd have to make a deal. Well, yeah. you'd have to win the trust, wouldn't you, yes. of the local yeah. authorities, magistrate, and so on, yeah. to perform. Yeah. So I guess you had to, well, you did have to yeah. present yourself. Yeah, and yeah. win the confidence, right, yeah. of the of, yeah. of the town yeah. fathers, if you like. Yeah. So because I, you know, actors still came under the legal category of rogues and and vagabonds, and that which goes back to Elizabethan period, and um and so they like they could be put in jail for performing, and some like very successful actors were in this period, such as John Palmer. And that doesn't change until the 1820s, which is remarkable to think about that actors like don't have uh, this respectability. They still had that uh, legal status that, that could make them vulnerable. One of the longest living indications yeah. of Tate Wilkinson's presence here in York yeah. is here at the Church of uh, All Saints. In, uh, at the pavement. Yeah, I think it's fascinating that um, he has got this memorial. Like, again, considering that he is a, an actor, this is very unusual for an actor to be you know, commemorated in this way. And it shows how important he was to the civic life of York. And it says that he was an, an affectionate husband, an indulgent father, and an honest man, which I just love. That's It's so... It's a sign of like the also the affection in which he was held by the York community, and it's interesting too that that like that plaque is it's it's in pavement. It's just across from Marks and Spencers. It's it's right in the center, still in the center of York, which was his stamping ground for you know so many years. You know, the point of this series, uh, Biographicon, is to try to revive interest in people yeah. of the 18th century who, yes. in the yeah. north who've, yeah. who perhaps have been lost. Yeah. So that's the principal reason, really. But the secondary reason is always to speak to scholars who have an interest in those people. Yeah. 
and to try to capture a little bit of their own personal yeah. fascination. Yeah. So can I ask you, when did you first hear about Tate Wilkinson and what drew you to him in the first place? Well, well Tate Wilkinson actually goes quite far back in my academic career because um, some biographicon detail about myself, but I started my PhD in Cambridge in the early 80s. The focus was on the relationship between um, seeing a play in the theatre and reading it as a as a text, you know, at the time, and whether there was a kind of, you know, emerging conflict that, uh, between seeing, you know, plays on, on the stage and reading them as drama. Yeah. So, uh, and Tate Wilkinson um, was, like, one of the authors that I, I examined, and um, uh, mainly through The Wandering Patentee, because what he does is that... He produces kind of two memoirs in the 1790s. He dies in 1803, so it's like in his 50s, and when he's like not so active, um, you know, in terms of touring and so on. So these are kind of major reflections on his own life in the memoirs, which is comes out in 1790, and then the wandering patentee is subtitled a history of the Yorkshire stage so it's not just about himself but about in a sense like his career in Yorkshire and so on um and and I think I was also kind of intrigued by the title The Wandering Patentee because I I mean that refers to the fact that he uh he acquired uh royal like permission to have a theatre in York and also Hull. He had two, like it was a, a dual um, uh, monopoly in a sense. Um, and this was very unusual for, um, especially for, for the North at that time. But um, so he had that status of holding a royal patent to which gives him you know, considerable kind of prestige and so on, but he combines that with wandering. It's highlighting, in a sense, the importance of his moving about the country and like that he's not fixed. He's not, uh, you know, located in a particular place. But that, but he's combining like, I think, uh, old senses of performing and theatre as something that's kind of peripatetic the vagabonding or strolling um uh so with a newer kind of commercial idea of the theater that we're accustomed to today is that it's takes place in a you know in a uh, a building uh that's got a, a company and so on so that uh, so he's he's on the cusp of, in a way of that change um, yeah, and, and also, uh, well, at that time, just, uh, you know, there was a, a reprint of The Wandering Patentee. It was produced by the Scholar Press in the um, 1970s with an index. So was, that was incredibly useful for me at the time because that was before these texts from the period are more accessible via databases and microfilms and so on. So it wasn't, as it were, a rare book that wasn't accessible. It, it became quite important for my work. But one thing in particular, one episode of the, uh, that really kind of... Uh, attracted me at that time was that he gives an account of uh, going to see a performance of a tragedy um, 
Nicholas Rose, the fair penitent, on board ship just off Portsmouth in the early 1790s. And uh, I was really intrigued by, well, the fact that we had sailors, naval officers and sailors, you know, performing in this, you know, famous and you know, long-established play on board ship during the wars, you know. And they invited Tate Wilkinson to kind of come and witness it and so on, which is a sign in a sense that he had this kind of public profile uh, not just, you know, in York, but he was a well-known figure at that time. And he gives this, like, a wonderful account of, you know, of the performance and so on. And that kind of later, after I'd finished my PhD and so on, I got interested in the relationship between the Army and Navy and theatre at this time. So that was, like, the genesis actually, of a book I produced in 1995 called The Theatres of War. So, like, in a, so in a way, Tate kind of propelled my career, as it were. Um, uh, yeah, and I think that relates to, in a way, that his role in 18th century, late 18th century culture as a whole was very much as a uh, sponsoring other people and you know so so in a way like I, I would see myself as being you know an inheritor of his role as as like uh, you know encouraging and developing career so I've always been you know fascinated by uh, and then I came to York in 2018 so you know it was a great opportunity to both to teach the 18th century um, theatre, which I hadn't done before, and also just to get to know the material environment in which you know he was involved, and and to meet people like you, Declan, and you know read your work and so on. So, um, yeah. So he's been about a constant in my own work for about getting on for forty years now. So a lot of your work has been. Um trying to reposition um, Mm -hmm. ideas about enlightenment and romanticism, maybe taking away emphasis from the great philosophers, thinkers, the the more standard sort of ways of thinking about these things and and making them more, um, bringing other people into the picture. And and, I mean, you obviously think Tate Wilkinson belongs in this enlightenment and romantic tradition. Yes, yeah, very much so. He moves from London to... Uh, Yorkshire, but he still has a kind of national identity and reputation. He creates the basis of a kind of national theatre in a way, a de facto one, in terms of like the careers he sponsors and so on. So in in a way, um, he combines both a focus on the local, which is a like a, a an enlightenment interest, you know, of the specific local. But also a, a a consciousness of of beyond and outward and and not being confined by the local, um, and uh, you know looking you know beyond, in a sense, a, a an enlightenment Britain, you know, which is not just England but also that relation that sense of there being connections with Scotland, with also with Ireland as well. Um, and traffic, the whole like, like the idea of traffic, I think, is really 
important. Um, so, so I think that, that I would see him as an enlightenment figure in that respect, most definitely. The place where we're recording this at the moment is King's Manor, which is exactly opposite the um, Theatre Royal, his old Theatre Royal. And in fact, only recently a student here has discovered that a part of the theatre, it's around the back really, is actually Tate Wilkinson's house. It's his old house that he lived in that whole time. Mm -hmm. And you can see he's at the very centre of this town, isn't he? The Minster is towering over you, less than 100 yards away. And right in front of him, there's the assembly rooms. So he's at the hub of social life. Because this is really what a lot of your work has been about, isn't it? Placing the theatre right at the heart of kind of 18th century cultural intellectual life in a way that people really haven't... This is quite a new thing, isn't it? Mm. Well, I think uh, that has probably been the result of that trend I was mentioning before is like the focus on drama as literature and the whole idea that developed in the late 18th century into the Romantic period and the 19th century that that the theatre was in decline. I Like that it wasn't as, you know, didn't represent the glories of Shakespeare and so on. So I think I started in my work in, in thinking about theatre as a... Uh, the importance of it as a social space and a sociable space and also political. Um, and that's something that I explored in um, Theatres of War was like, well, the idea of war as being kind of conflict, you know, uh, within the theatre itself. So you'd get the theatres being a site of contention between um, those who were supporting the French Revolution, say, after 1789, and loyalists, like supporters of Church and King. So you sometimes get kind of pitched battles. So the theatre was a highly charged space, and it performed this really um, important social role in the sense of bringing various classes together as well because and they these were also quite small spaces i mean that um the theater royal um wilkinson's theater would hold up to 500 people but that would have been really packed so let's say it's maybe 300 average 300 350 so it's not a huge space so it's quite intimate in terms of social connection and so on that you can see Lord so-and-so or Lady so-and-so in the boxes um, and you've got, you know, your servants, artisans, you know, the uh, soldiers uh, and sailors and so on in the gallery. So there's that r- real sense of highly charged proximity. And I suppose I've been interested in the way in which the theatre can create moments of social encounter that are really highly charged and very significant and in a sense the theatre event uh, in terms of performance and sort of like a performance event. I think the importance also of the theatre as also a literary space as well in the sense of going to the theatre as a way of experiencing and appreciating and interpreting dramatic texts that are not really distinct from reading them. I don't think that kind of... um, gulf between reading plays on the page and seeing them in the theatre is not really operative then. So I've more recently tried to bring the literary, as it were, back into 
kind of conjunction with the theatrical. But but to see this also as like a, a space that is kind of resonating in so many different areas of, of 18th century life. So I suppose like the whole idea of that theatre shouldn't just be an add-on to other aspects of 18th century, the study of 18th century culture. Yeah, I mean, audiences were sort of incredibly well informed yeah. weren't they they knew yep. they knew the plays by um, yeah. and they'd police the plays in a way wouldn't yeah. they they'd be sitting yeah. there making sure that the actors actually yeah. stuck to the text and yeah. and even legally i think the actors were yeah. obliged to yeah. to not actually move away from yes. the that's one thing that is i think is is perhaps quite interesting and surprising to people is just the level of professionality yeah that could be yes. you know, that was yeah. on display in these theatres yeah. in um, in in the York on the York yeah. Circuit or whatever. Yeah. It was really exceptionally high yeah. level, yeah. you know, quality acting, wasn't it? Yes. Tate Wilkinson sort of is famous really for for providing a for um, yes. serving as a nursery. Yeah. He used to talk about it very much in botanical terms, didn't he? Yes. Um, yes. So he really, you know, he he provided a service, didn't he? Yeah. Yes. So he's a real kind of entrepreneur, but because of his kind of extensive connections that he already has, also with, with Ireland, he's, you know, he performed in Dublin for a, a period. So he's very well connected and he is able to kind of exploit those connections by attracting major performers on the one hand, but also kind of uh, nurturing talent. He, he obviously had an eye for performers that had a lot of potential. And one example of this would be Charles Matthews, you know, who was also a mimic. He also specialised in mimicry. And Matthews becomes a major uh, figure in the early uh, 19th century, uh, influencing Dickens and so on. So there's a kind of sense of a lineage and also that he's fostering and and it seems also that he had a reputation for being someone who was decent and honourable. And I think that that seems to have been a big factor in his reputation. People liked working for him, in contrast with other theatre managers like, you know, Daly in, in Ireland, who was like the Harvey Weinstein of 18th century theatre. So that sense of fathering I think you know is quite interesting and like also in the light of his own family experience perhaps and also the idea of the company the theatre company as a as a family but he was the monarch of that family wasn't he yes yes most definitely yeah he was the boss yeah yeah and he uses this language of the, this kind of rather military language, doesn't he? Yes. That's very common to, yeah. to theatre yeah. and to obviously yeah. the battlefield. Yeah, that again is going back to Wandering Patentee and its influence on me because it's totally suffused with the language of taking the town and being the general, bringing his troops. I think kind of conveys something about the status of theatre people in 18th century culture that that they were strangers that would enter a town or a village like and really small kind of settlements and so on would have had experience of you know the um lower ranks of theatrical companies like just people with a cart 
and a few kind of costumes and scenery that would set up and play in a barn, say. So there's that sense of, like, well, the fascination of these strangers coming into your town or your village, staying for a few days and then moving on and so on. But he he's also needing to kind of get the agreement of the communities that he's performing in. So there is a sense in which he's engaged in a campaign and that campaign would also kind of entail, you know, close relations with the print media, which is really important in the sense of like, uh, and that's a major factor uh, in um, the development of 18th century theatre at the time, you know, for publicity purposes and so on. For printing playbills and printing playbills, yeah, and possibly newspaper, yeah, articles, yeah. right, yeah, yeah. So, um, so there's a close relationship between the theatre development you know, of the theatre this time, and also uh, local newspapers, print networks, and so on, and like they are kind of interimplicated, you could say. Like, for example, printers would be producing playbills. That's where you'd go to get your playbill to see what was on, but also tickets. And also you'd buy your, your playbook from the printer and so on. So uh, there's a kind of nexus of um, local book- booksellers and, and the theatre. They were reliant on each other. So they like, the theatre brought trade so Wilkinson would be paying a local printer to print his playbills for him and, and so on so it's a they're it's mutually beneficial and just the on the subject of um the sort of book and the stage the print yep. you know yep. the, the print and the spoken word yeah I mean in a lot of um towns um, that these actors would go to. They're providing um, a model, aren't they, on the stage? They're, yes. They're figures yep. of... They're, they're giving... Yep. They're providing... They're showing people how to speak, how to yep. move, how to yep. role yep. model, if you like. Yeah. So they're sort of... Ex- they're, they're performing that function. Yes. Yeah. It's an educative function as well. Yeah. It's not just entertainment. It's like uh, certainly... Uh, you know, the actors would have had... A kind of training, as it were, in other contexts, in deportment, you know, and, and um, how to how to hold your body, how to use the body, control the 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 speaking voice. So, like, and that's really important for all in all sorts of spheres. Like, in a sense, like you're even like an artisan who's you know working in in a particular position and so on to be able to hold your own and to be able to speak clearly and properly was was a, a very important social asset so the theater models a lot of ways of being in this period yeah and a lot of um, actors would have a sideline uh, business wouldn't they teaching yeah you yes. know elocution yeah. it, even as they were touring through yeah. through on yeah. the, to these yeah. towns they'd yeah. they'd provide that service and yeah. earn a bit more money on the yeah. side yeah 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 so it's almost like a Mobile universities, almost like informal education. Yeah. You're mentioning playbills. Um, yeah. Reminds me about your well, your recent book, the yeah. um, ephemeral 18th century, which has a chapter dedicated to the playbill. Yeah. Um, tell, can you tell what is it about ephemera and also yeah. about the playbill that fascinates you so much? I suppose because a lot of the record of the 18th century theatre is based on ephemeral documentation like playbills 
and newspaper clippings and so on. And when I started my PhD and so on, and I got really fascinated by collections of this kind of material. So what's happening at the time is that a lot of people are uh, documenting theatre as it's happening through the preservation of, of playbills as records and so on. Um, and so they're not ephemeral. <laughs> they survived, you know. So I was reliant on, on that kind of material for my earlier work. And then more recently I was thinking, well, what about the... How did those man, uh, artefacts manage to survive? Um, and so I got interested in the people who collected them. And that included kind of actors as well and theatre managers because papers could function as a, a kind of institutional record. So they would keep files of you know, all the performances and so on, but also actors kind of collected them as a, as a way of recording their own careers and where they'd performed and, and so on. So they create memory depositories, as it were, and there's an actor who... Uh, worked for Wilkinson called Fawcett, John Fawcett. And he's a huge collect. you know, he collects so many playbills. Also, Charles Matthews himself, that I mentioned before, he created um, basically a kind of theatre museum in his house in Islington, and including a lot of portraits and so on. Of he, he So we had a gallery of portraits of actors, and as well as a lot of other forms of documentation. Um, and a lot of the portraits are now in the Garrick Club in London. And obviously it's the case with T. Wilkinson as well, because he's, he's producing his memoirs. And so they've a real highly developed consciousness of their own, of the need to record what they were doing, or recognising that a lot of it, you know, is like, genuinely ephemeral in the sense that you know it, it, it's of the moment and, and disappears and so on and the Minster Library here in York has got a lot of the playbills from the York Theatre um, including Wilkinson's in a collection that was actually made by a man called Edward Hailstone who was a Bradford solicitor who in the in the nineteenth century who collects everything in relation to Yorkshire and he's very interested in the theatre too. So you get the these individuals that are, are in some cases kind of lost to history, such as Hailstone and so on, but are really important in, you know, creating those records and archiving them for the future. You know, so there's that consciousness of the future as well as the now of the performance. So the Minster Library is just this wonderful resource. So yeah, like I've, I love the Playbill. <laughs> and just on the subject of, of sort of illegality as well, yep. the play, there's a, that's a way of, of dating Playbills, isn't it? Because if, if a Playbill says that, it's, that the performance will be a concert of music... Yes. There's a, that's always an indicator that came before 1788. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. So 1788 is quite an important date for the Theatrical Representations Act, which means that so that magistrates can license, you know, a theatre for a local theatre for particular periods. So they don't need to get 
you know, a patent from the king as Tate Wilkinson did. So he he was legal, as it were, before 1788, but it leads to um, a development uh, in theatre building, like constructions of, of buildings, including in Richmond, you know, in just up the road from here, we the Richmond um, Theatre. And and that that's built by you know Samuel Butler is another important figure, who was born in York and is yeah. is a York yeah. a, an actor came from York yeah. because even before Tate Wilkinson there's a long tradition yes. of theatre in yeah. this it, yeah. in York it's not like he started it as you no. were talking about he's sort of inherited Baker's work yeah exactly so there's a um, you know in Carrigan as and, well yeah, earlier going. so there's you know the so there's a long uh, you know, tradition that he's building on. And as you're talking about um, the circuits that, that um, link yep. up legal assizes or, or, or race meetings, yep. there was a connection between York and Newcastle even back to Carrick into the 1720s. Yeah. So yeah. those two centres yeah. are linked yeah. by the theatre. And Wilkinson, yeah. I think, even performs yeah. at Newcastle, yeah. doesn't he? He yeah. takes the theatre and he loses it and he's very sulky yes. about yes. it. It was yeah. a big loss for him. And he, he moves into Leeds. He develops Leeds as an alternative. So another story would be, because he's not just York in a way, but to think about Wilkinson and the development of culture in Leeds as well, and Hull, you know, we, we don't want to just prioritise York here, but yeah. Yeah, because yeah. it's a circuit, it, it, right? These companies yeah. were, they weren't really yeah. fixed to yeah. one real location, were they? they no, but they tended no. to be a, based in a county, I think, generally yes. speaking, didn't yeah. they? So yeah. he would be the York County kind of yeah. company, yeah. So, really. So, yeah, so York would be the kind of headquarters, as it were. But then, like, he, so they travelled to Leeds, Wakefield, Pontefract, um, and Hull, so as well, so, which is a very, like, is a different kind of conception of theatre than, you know, so we'd have, like, maybe national tours, but that idea of there being a kind of network, that's also really visible in the playbills as well, because, you know, I'd say where he's going to be next, where the company's going to be next. One thing that strikes me always when I look at the playbills, it reminds me that the... Um, when you find collections yeah, and you can see yeah. um, what the performers were doing on a on a regular basis, yes. you can see that there weren't things like we see now, like the run, the, the run of the same play. No, they no. were performing different plays yep. every yeah. single night. It's, it's incredible, like the that that idea of the repertory. You know, so there's a re- relationship between plays that are, you know, stock plays that they play regularly. But also introduction of new plays as well, because they need they need to keep the, especially like towards the end of the eighteenth century, when uh, they they need to keep the um, custom of you know the fashionable elite and so on and track them back. So here we've got a play that was on in uh, London last month. So they were very diligent, you know, in getting play texts and so on from London and adapting them and. Yeah, so the industry is incredible. Yeah. And and it's a, a great example of the extension of culture across the yeah. nation. Yeah. I mean, it's a principal means by which yeah. to, yeah. to uh, culture is being yeah. disseminated, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, as, as, exactly. as yeah. definitely as significant as print yeah. in, in, yeah. In, in many ways, anyway. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
Yeah, and creating cultural memory as well. I mean, because that was one of the things about the repertory is, you know, audiences would be, they'd see a play a number of times, you know, because, for example, like Elizabeth Inchbald, the, um, she's a, begins as an actress, becomes a, a, a dramatist and is a novelist and then a, a critic. She's an amazing kind of figure. But she, she's another one of... Um, uh, you know, flower in in Wilkinson's nursery. You know, because he he sponsored her her work, and she has a comedy called Everyone Has His Fault, which is comes out in seventeen ninety three in London. It's performed here within a month, and then there are over fifty performances of that until eighteen o three. So, people would have like probably seeing it a number of times and they were able to kind of, as it were, create a knowledge bank, you know, of like, well, what was this performer like and did they do it differently and so on? So it's a way of like um, cultivating both knowledge and discrimination, you know, like in a sense. And that includes everyone in the theatre in a way, like it includes the servants as as well as the like the local gentry is in a sense they are open to yeah um yeah i've seen this so many times and uh, and i'm entitled to this cultural exposure and just to backtrack a little bit but that's um this that illustrates also the point about the theater being really one of the few places in 18th century britain where people from different social classes would would actually be able to encounter each other yeah Yes, definitely, definitely. So, in a political sense, that's it's it's quite yeah. a yeah. it's a it's a an interesting forum yeah. for yeah. for open discussion of things. Yeah, and and one of the few forums. Yeah, you know, it becomes more stratified, especially in the seventeen nineties, with the whole network of forms of association, like debating clubs and, and tavern meetings and so on. But the theatre is where those in power are in close proximity to those who are powerless. Yeah. So you, so as you were mentioning before, uh, during the 1790s, you get some really contested moments, don't yeah. you? Where, yeah. where yeah. there's the call to to yeah. Um, yeah. to sing the the national anthem yes. or, or alternatives yeah. Yeah. to that, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so it's a test of like loyalty and so on. So even though like. The, the plays themselves might not be explicitly political because they couldn't be because of, of censorship, which is another another story entirely. But, but it was a means that audience behaviour could create a political atmosphere or a political moment when someone says, you know, refuses to sing God Save the King. That's, that's really important, you know. So... And that's a moment of tension and expression. It's political expression. You you mentioned that after 1788, there was a boom in theatre yeah. building. It's kind of a golden age, really, yeah, isn't it? it when is, it is. the theatre we, we don't. It's not recognised, you know, like because um, it was much easier to see a play then than it is now. You know, like in in all sorts of most towns, villages, uh, and not to mention the the strolling players that would turn up, but you know, it's it was much easier to see a play. And your but your book on uh, theatres of war the, the, yeah. that kind of illustrates the, that that reinforces this idea that 
after 1788 with the war there's yeah. a kind of a there's a com- there's a relationship isn't there that yes. where yeah. where yeah. the war is actually in, in many ways sort of fueling the growth in yes. in 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 theater attendance yeah no it's very it's very important because it's it's so it's r and r in a sense for local uh, military and so but it's a way um i think it, wilkinson's really uh, there's a bit in which he complains about, and this isn't expressly political, but about the some of the officers just getting really drunk and you know vomiting <laughs> and and being really offensive, uh, and that you know he wishes they wouldn't do that. So they're really important to the theatre economy, but also can be disruptive and problematic. Yeah. After the war ends in eighteen fifteen, there's a kind of slump. For theatres, like especially in those that are close to like ports and so on, such as Sheerness, you know, in, in the south, uh, so the the theatres really decline. So um, yeah, so so theatres important for you know business during war. You know, so and vice versa. And yeah. that this that, that exactly that happens with the Richmond uh, yeah. uh, company or the Samuel Butler's uh, yeah. circuit because yeah. they they fall the the whole circuit collapses yeah. after yeah. eighteen fifteen, doesn't yes. it? Um, yeah. yeah. After being at really a height, yeah. a really successful, yeah. a height of success. Yep. So Tate Wilkinson lived under the shadow of the Minster. Um, all of these records, the playbills are held yes, in in the yes, Minster yeah. Library. This this all yeah. of these ephemera. Yeah. Um, but did he have a relationship with religion? Um, did it come out in any other, any way? Recently, I was like rereading um, the Wandering Patentee, and and there's an amazing episode in it when he, like, to, and this is uh, must be like in the 1790s. It's towards the end of his life when he has a dream that he goes into um, the Minster and... There's the bells. <laughs> um, he goes into the Minster and uh, the statues come alive in the, min- in the Minster and are kind of talking to him. Um, and I think that that is really fascinating in, in terms of thinking about animation, like, in a way, making... You know, you know, making the dead live, as it were, but also his sense of the importance of an audience as well. That what he was doing is he like he's uh, theatre as a means of um, bringing people to life as well. So it was, uh, yeah. I like. I think I really want to um, suggest the the importance of his memoirs as like being like looked at more seriously rather than just mind for like information in, in um, uh, theatre history like as you know as important texts in their own right yeah so then do you think that Tate Wilkinson belongs in the biographical oh undoubtedly <laughs> I would be very <laughs> uh, yeah no if he wasn't here like no he's he's um he, he, he he's such an important figure I think and, and mainly because of what he says about the importance of theatre to cultural, social, political, economic life um, in that period, yeah. Um, and again, that, that possibility of theatre as being transformative um, and intimate and it's people, um, you know, watching other people. 
uh, perform and and having uh, you know very powerful responses to that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, Gillian, for giving me the opportunity to talk to you about a figure who has influenced your your yeah. academic life. Yeah. So much. Yeah. It's been a real privilege to speak yeah, to you. Yeah, it's it. been such a pleasure, Declan. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. By separating into one biographicon, this peculiar class of lives, a philanthropic emulation would be excited. A debt of social gratitude would be discharged. A trophy to patriotism would be erected and an instructive knowledge of the present state of nations and the gradual concatenation of intercourse would be diffused. Literature should rear altars to the missionaries of human civilization.